My name is Scott Challoner and this is the Leaders Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a very cool winter morning here in the capital today, but I'm delighted to say that joining me on the show to hopefully add some warmth to affairs is Elizabeth Wrigley, urban designer and owner of Core Connections, a design practice which brings together consultation, urban design and master planning. Um, Liz, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Good morning. Um, I think the last few times I've listened to weather forecasts, the word that's been used is rather simple, drab. Mm. So it's a rather drab Monday morning and a rather drab January. <laughs> and uh, we all need a little bit of cheering up, I guess. <laughs> We do, exactly right. And um, just, of course, for those that might not be familiar with yourself and uh, your business, uh, Liz, you've been around, of course, since uh, 2004. I've given a little bit of very brief background about what you do, but um, it wasn't always what you were doing, was it? I mean, you initially worked in the sort of public and private sector before going and uh, sort of setting up your own business. So what was it that sort of made you think that going and forming Core Connections and going into business for yourself was going to be sort of the way forward for you? I'm a bit like quite a few people of my generation. We've kind of had enterprise thrust upon us, oh. um, to rather misquote Shakespeare. But um, there I was in a company I adored, a very large architecture planning and structural engineering company, um, up with the likes of Richard Rogers and Norman Foster, some of the people I worked with. Um, amazing engineers like Anthony Hunt and Peter Rice. So I was a very lucky girl, had five glorious years there. But their workload, had lot, a lot of it had been in the public sector in the past, particularly mm. before I was even born. They were very famous just after the war. And YRM moved itself into being very much more for the private sector, particularly for large businesses in the city. Their offices were in Clerkenwell, just round the corner from the city. The city was beginning to have a very hard time, and our workload began to have a very hard time. My job was the planning job, I pretty much the forecasting and the business development side of things, because it wasn't town planning just that I did. It was a lot of other things, town planning, master planning. And um, somehow they slipped me into planning the business future. I announced that there was a downturn coming, so they shot the pianist as one does. Mm. <laughs> so the pianist thought she'd better wake up the next morning and do something that was a little bit more under her own control. And that's what gave me the original idea of setting up on my own. A lot of the architects in that firm were having to move and set up on their own. So I knew there was a steady streak of people who knew me who would want my planning expertise. So that's really how it started. But um, it was very scary, I have to say. Mm. I was extremely lucky. I was given a, a little computer um, and allowed to keep it for two months in my home to get started. And then one Saturday morning, somebody turned up and demanded the computer back. And I said, oh, thank goodness for that. I just bought one. And um, there was a bit of a crestfallen look on his face because obviously the office had sent him along to prove that I couldn't possibly manage without them. Mm. And I was managing perfectly well. <laughs> so I first started really. This goes to show, doesn't it, that there are always sort of detractors, aren't there, in, in a sense. And 
uh, just having had that experience of almost against the odds, having built up your own business, um, just for some of those younger viewers that regularly tune into this podcast who may sort of have their own big idea, uh, what sort of advice would you sort of give to them to really get them on the road to success with starting their own business, having done it yourself? Well, again, I was very lucky because at the time there were courses um, in the basics of business and, um, you know, those things that seem scary were were sort of really, there were a lot of central government and local government and um, local colleges even. There were a lot of sources of help. Um, So I think we were quite well supported at the time. Because there were so many people who were facing unemployment but thinking about enterprise, mm. there was there was quite a, a, a headwind behind me. And I'm not sure that's the case at the moment. Maybe that will come back again quite shortly as people are sort of re-evaluating what they want to do so very much at the moment. But other advice, and I did work for a while with the Prince's Trust as, as a little advisor. I'd say little in the sense that I only advised a few people. But we used to do very practical things like um, cut up your cornflakes box and keep all your invoices in it. And each month have a different cornflakes box when you finish your cornflakes. Mark up the month and keep all the invoices for that month in it. Simple. And um, then you transfer from the cornflakes box into an envelope, mark it up, and then your records, at least the starting point of them, are kept. So just getting people to that very simple starting point of what it involves to run your own business to be responsible for absolutely everything. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Just the basics of sort of starting out sort of almost from your it, home it, it, and it building isn't a, up. It, yeah. isn't, it isn't an adventure. I think that's exactly right. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about the analogy of surfing. Not that I've ever been surfing, mm. but that you're looking for business opportunity. You know there are going to be waves coming onto a beach. You don't precisely know which waves you're going to be able to get up on and crest and, and, and get a smooth run in. You'll fall off a few times and just keep going. You, you know you want to learn to surf. You're not aiming to crest a particular wave. And I think if you take that as an analogy for what you're trying to do in your business, that little bit of give and take flexibility, can I try it a slightly different way? Can I associate with some slightly different people? Can I mark it in a slightly different way? just helps. Just give yourself your perspective. Okay, I'm on the beach today. Maybe not getting any waves at all today. That's okay. Tomorrow the waves, well, the surf will be up. And that's, that's a good way of looking at it, I mm. think, to keep your, keep your focus, but also keep that flexibility. And it suggests as well, doesn't it, that almost setbacks and disappointments are almost going to be part and parcel of the whole experience. And it's important, therefore, mm. to not view sort of a failure or a setback as terminal, but respond to that in the right way. And that is very hard if you've been used to being in a large firm where a lot of things are done without you even knowing they had to be done. Mm. Um, the other piece of advice, I think, looking back, and it's something it's really hard. When you've got lots of work, I'm afraid that's the time where you should be marketing to your full extent because you're marketing for the future, for when that lot of work that you've got on the plate on a Monday morning actually isn't going to be there. There's no good waiting till you've got no business to start marketing. So always when I was incredibly busy, it would be a trigger. Uh-uh, I've got to spend an evening doing some serious thought about marketing. 
So, um, yes, the life-work balance is, is it's a tricky one, I have to say. It's a very tricky one. When you're running your own business, it's always feast or famine. And, and that's another little reality you have to face, I think. Mm. And the work-life balance especially is something that's come to the fore in the last couple of years, isn't it, with the COVID-19 situation, certainly, because we've seen so many business leaders sort of in crisis mode, in survival mode, and they've been sort of doing everything, keeping tabs on everybody's sort of mental well-being. And quite often when you do that and the chips are down, you don't often sort of take that step back for yourself as and when you need to. And I suppose director burnout, CEO burnout, it's a very, very real thing, isn't it, that we do need to be aware of? Well, I think, again, if you're running your own business and you kind of realize one of the reasons you're doing it is because you're doing it for yourself, then a lot of these other things that you're thinking about for yourself come into play as well. Um, looking after yourself, looking after those that are close to you and reaching out to people, exploring new ideas and so forth. Um, that, that brings a balance. I mean, it isn't just rest. It's it sometimes novelty brings a balance as well. Um, coming back to the working from home, um, I suppose like one or two other people when I was doing some interviews during COVID, and I'll perhaps talk a little bit about that later, um, I was incredibly lucky that I already had a working setup at home. And um, therefore all my functioning from home was already there. I didn't mm. have to spend those, those agonizing months trying to work out how on earth to work from home. And I, as a planner, I get a lot of statistical information that comes in through my inbox. And one that came in this week was extraordinary. 49% of people who were working from home during this last period of COVID said their homes were really not suited for that. 49%. So, you know, the assumption that everybody is going to go into a mode of part working from home, part not working from home, may be an assumption we need to have another look at mm. and really think hard about. It may be what it really is that some people have homes that are appropriate to work from, and other people have home circumstances where it simply isn't appropriate. And to say you've got to compete for the few office desks on an equal basis when your home isn't suitable may be very, very unfair and, and actually not just inequitable, but not very satisfactory for the firm either. So there's a lot to think about, a lot to think about in working from home. Um, as a planner, one of the exciting things that's happened is, of course, suburbia has revitalized mm. in quite an extraordinary way. Um, and, uh, what seems to emerge is that city living and sort of living that Richard Rogers, who was obviously a very, very much an advocate of inner city living and did a lot to try and promote it, promote good public spaces. And uh, that amazing Beaubourg public space in Paris was a good example of what he meant. But a lot of people during COVID just opted to go further out to, to get a more balance of green into their lives possibly because they were fed up of walking around the local streets when mm. they went for their, for their um, customary daily walk. But um, it, it has changed our views quite a lot, I think, about cities versus suburbia or even countryside living. 
Yes, exactly right, because people now are looking to sort of move out into sort of bigger homes that are more suited to home working and sort of where, you know, the surrounding area is a lot more desirable because we're now more in tune with going for sort of walks during lunch times, aren't we? And those attitudes toward our public spaces, they really are starting to change. And I think a lot of that came not just from working from home, but of course homeschooling. And suddenly the house was having to operate as a school, an office, a canteen, and, um, and, an, and, and an amusement arcade all at once. Quite something, really, when you think about it. It is. It is. When, when you think that we've adjusted to that almost overnight as well, I suppose it is testament to the British people, British industry at large as well. And like I say, it, it, when you look back at just the change, the scale of change that's happened overnight, it is quite incredible how we've managed to adapt to that. It was, um, but I think it was very scary for most people. Mm. And it was that uncertainty. I think if we'd had that plus a lot of certainty that, okay, we were going to give it a go for two years, and um, we were pretty certain that by the end of two years, we might have been able to be um, relatively disease-free. I think everybody would have looked at it in a slightly different way. But that awful thinking feeling we still have at the moment, could another variant come along? Could this be the way of life for the future? Is this what we've done to ourselves, which comes down to the other big, big elephant in the room of climate change? Mm. Uh, air pollution in particular. I mean, I do think a lot of reasons why people have welcomed working from home is that they haven't had to commute through polluted air every mm. day. Exactly right. Um, it is mm. very, very serious problem. Um, one of the things I've done since I've been in my own business and it's been a delight to do is that you can somehow blend, blend in your own personal value system with your work values in a way that's very difficult to do if you're in a large, large firm. Um, but you can sort of set some parameters. And, and, and I think one of the parameters that I set quite early on is that I do value the environment and I like to have clients who do as well. So that's very interesting. So the, the impact of COVID on, on small market towns that revived, on big market towns that revived, suburban parades of shops has been very interesting but of course the um the counterbalance was that the, the really big centers have suffered terribly mm. um they were already in trouble big time particularly places like department stores were in trouble big time and uh, i think they're they're getting water now completely so there are a lot of exciting possible uses for these huge spaces in cities but they will come at a price they will come at a price of um a lot of real estate value to take somebody somewhere, but um, also a lot of reinvestment will be needed for retrofitting them. So very interesting things to look at, really, mm. really interesting. This idea of being 15 minutes away from everything you need by within a sensible walking distance, which is what Paris is now advocating. Mm. Of course, that's wonderful, but um, there's still going to be a lot of places where it's going to be a struggle to get. 15 minutes walking distances to actually work. Yes, it's changing times, isn't it? And I think as we start to sort of see those changes take shape, as you mentioned, climate and those changing attitudes to sort of what we want from our public spaces, that's going to be very much at the forefront. And 
climate has been talked about very much at the sort of heart of everything that we're doing now in this building back better agenda it's the next big challenge that we're going to have to uh, to face and of course we also had the cop 26 climate summit in uh, the uk uh, just last year as well so it's really thrust it back into the national limelight hasn't it this whole sort of pandemic and everyone is now more aware of it Absolutely, and I think that awareness is extremely important. One of the fascinating things I did actually during um, lockdown, I was invited to be an expert, which was a humbling experience with some of the other experts who were invited, on a climate assembly in the Adur and Worthing area down on the south coast. Climate assembly was a random group of ordinary citizens who were going to get themselves together, all done by Zoom because it was during COVID, and um, listen to a whole series of um, talks and discussions and debates about aspects of climate change, and then participate in putting together an agenda for the future for those areas. Um, participating in this was fascinating, amongst other things. Um, we watched a Netflix program called My Octopus Teacher, Octopuses are um, extremely intelligent creatures mm. and rather fascinating. Um, but um, because Worthing and Adur are on the coast, one of the interesting outcomes was what sort of changes do you need in the coastal area? I was looking at things like rising sea levels, problems of flooding, problems of the sorts of materials you might use where the air is salt-laden. But other people were talking about the actual sea itself and the condition of the sea, plastics in the sea, et cetera, et cetera. One of the most fascinating things that came out was the fact that there's a kelp forest, kelp sea, mm. outside Worthing. And it started people thinking about restoring this kelp forest and maintaining it into the future um, the way you would keep any forest because it actually probably absorbs as much carbon dioxide as a forest on land, and is helpful to the sea creatures that uh, are part of our food chain. So this was utterly fascinating stuff. It's incredible, isn't it, what the pandemic has almost done for networking in a sense with how we've all been so isolated physically but been able to connect so much more due to the hastening of that digital revolution. And um, interestingly as well, some of your own networking, Liz, during the last couple of years has almost taken a step back to the um, sort of 16th century and brought back the old Spanish tertulia, hasn't it, um, bringing people together to just talk about general issues. What was utterly fascinating was that um, out of the blue, I was asked to host this tertulia, which translates in English roughly to a conversation mm. at home. Um, and it's, this was a, a, an international attempt to get people from different countries who were designers to think about the future and the impact of uh, COVID and lockdowns and all the things that go with that on our design and our design work. But also we were looking at how our own businesses and home life was being impacted. And this unfolded over three sessions over a period of nine months. So each three months we were getting back together again online and discussing what changes have been, how was homeschool going in one particular couple's case, how was um, working from home going for a big 
architecture business that was based just behind Regent Street. So missing out on going into the buzz of the capital every day. Um, another one was a developer. How how was it to be a developer during COVID? Quite a challenge. And um, fourth that joined us was from Design for London, where um, she was looking at these very rapid changes to the road system to accommodate people being able to walk and cycle. And literally changes were happening overnight. Um, with varied results, as you can imagine. And uh, what she was having to do was then go back over these and look again at the consultation that should have taken place in quote-unquote normal circumstances, but um, trying to predict what we might need when we come out of the unusual stage we're Mm. in now. Um, And in particular, how a lot of these were effectively experiments that proved they could work. Mm. Some were experiments that proved drastically that they couldn't work. Um, Major roads became a lot more polluted and uh, life on those became hell. But um, the balance to be drawn, I think, will not be the same as the balance would have been if we hadn't had this uh, incredibly strange experience of the last two years. But, um, yeah, talking with these people, and and, and we've got very... um, very fond of one another as mm. it were by, by, by this process because we were literally sharing. I mean, even the dog, one of the groups, joined into um, some of our YouTube attempts. So anybody who'd been watching these in other parts of the world would have met Corby the dog. We put Corby's CV up because we thought it was rather fun. Mm. Corby's role was um, the, um, the company's parks and landscape investigator and uh, had a very serious role to play, sussing out which were the best local parks and which were the best local walks. I thought this was absolutely extraordinary and great fun. It's incredible. It has brought the fun back into sort of business meetings, hasn't it? The whole sort of Zoom call kind of thing, you know, when you're getting disturbed by pets and children and that sort of thing. It is fantastic. And I suppose... Uh, but having international conversations like this as well, I mean, it opens up a whole sort of broad range of perspectives. I mean, we're all in the same boat. We're all suffering from COVID and seeing the challenges. But I suppose the impact for each person and everything, it's its going to be different, isn't it? And it's good to share those perspectives. Absolutely. I mean, one of the stunning ones that we watched just to close this little part about these um, particular tertullias was a conversation in Hong Kong where they hadn't, locked down at that particular point. And so four young ladies were sipping champagne in somebody's apartment. And it, it was really quite an extraordinary experience to watch this because at the time, most of us were saying, oh my goodness, you can't meet a, a, a non-family member and sit drinking champagne with them. How exciting to watch somebody who could. It is incredible. Yeah, really is just seeing how different things are all over the world. And I think yeah, there's yeah, a lesson it, to come it was from it. an mm. unfolding process. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, mm. Coming back to the idea of open spaces, about seven years ago, um, it's 2014, I can't do my maths today, the Wolfson Prize topic was Garden Cities. Mm. And it started a very interesting set of conversations about the history of Letchworth and actually well in Garden City as well. And Ebenezer Howard's experiment with um, trying to get the best of town and the best of country, which is kind of what we seem to be revisiting with COVID, don't we? It's quite interesting how what goes around comes around. Mm. 
And um, yes, I mean, that was escaping from air pollution and disease. What a surprise that um, we feel familiar with that now. Um, it was allowing people the option of having a small house with a garden by giving them a very small house and a garden and having to commute a fair distance on a train to your job. Um, so there were downsides to the garden village, garden suburb, garden town principle. But Ebenezer Howard also wanted a lot more, um, not just homes, but also places to work and was arguing that you didn't have to have a, a, a noisy, polluting workplace. You could have one that was suitable to have in a garden city. And indeed they did in, in Letchworth have quite a good mix and still have a quite a good mix of, of homes and jobs. And this, I think, is probably what ought to be happening in all of our new developments. But I have to say that um, we went on to set up a thing called the New Garden City Alliance, mm. of which I was one of the founder members. And that's been an interesting process of trying to pull together People like the Royal Institute of British Architects, the Royal Town Planning Institute, Town and Country Planning Association, the Landscape Institute, and then lots and lots of individuals, all of whom can join. Anybody can join. You can join. Anybody listening to this podcast can join. It's very simple to find it. It's gardencities.org.uk. And uh, yes, we were saying, let's have another look at these principles. Let's have another look at this idea of combining the best of town and country, bringing nature back into cities, bringing walking back into cities, cycling, and uh, growing food. So um, that was, I suppose, as a small business, again, I was saying that you can set mm. your values, you can set the things that you want to do. And that was nice to be able to use that ability as a small business to say, right, I believe in this. I will become a founder member. And hey, yeah, my business can be be a member if necessary. There's no problem to it if it's your own business. You can decide that. You can, exactly. And I think these sorts of aspects are incredibly important for sort of well-being as well because we've spoken um, a lot on this podcast in previous episodes about how having the flexibility to not have to commute into a polluted office space it makes you more time efficient. You can sort of get up and you can do a lot more, but then you have to be more careful about how you sort of manage yourself, don't you? Because if you blur the line between your sort of workspace and your home space, the temptation can be to sort of jump on your email inbox at a terrible time in the evening when you necessarily wouldn't do that. So it's important as well when we're talking about sort of having these green spaces where, you know, we, we have to vary our working lives, don't we? We don't just work within one room in the house. We can go and work in the garden. We can literally go and just work in a little cafe or something. It's about sort of bringing a little bit of diversity in as well, isn't it, into your sort of personal working life? It does, but I do think another function when you set up your own business that's been very interesting, and again, I can, funnily enough, I can draw on a little bit of my own experience with this, is shared workspaces. When I finished my urban design course, I was set up into a little group for a while that um, took on the old Greater London Council School stationery store, amongst many other old redundant office and, uh, and, and factory buildings, and converted them into shared workspaces, business centres. 
And there were at that time about 20 dotted around London. Now there must be many, many hundreds because Mm. the idea of shared workspace became much more universal. But one of the fun things about it was you could be a small business on your own, but there was a cafe in the building where you'd meet all the other small businesses. And effectively what happened is it became a marketplace for intertrading. And I think it was Alan Baxter who was a very good transport consultant in in Clarkenwell who said, well, if you want to set up business, you set up your market stall on the crossroads. And I think it's absolutely true, whether it's an internet crossroads or a physical crossroads, but if you set yourself up where there are going to automatically be reasons to connect with other people and talk to them, it's not so isolating as trying to literally work from home. So I do think even if you've got people who are going down this trajectory of not going into a main office in a central place, the notion that you might go into somewhere where you will encounter other businesses. It's more than just working in a different place like say an internet cafe. Mm. It's having the opportunity to have conversations with other people, unexpected conversations maybe. Which does link back to this idea of the Tertullius and the coffee coffee house conversations of the seventeenth century. I mean the city of London had so many coffee houses and they were where people met to do business and have conversations and find out what was going on. And out of them came things like the Royal Society and mm. many of these other groups. Um, I'm a fellow of the RSA and uh, that St. John's Street RSA, the house there, was often a wonderful place to just go and have a cup of coffee and accidentally start talking to somebody else who was also a fellow. You never knew quite who you'd meet or what you'd talk Mm. about, but it was always very, very interesting. Um, So I do think the chance to have opportunities to meet people with different opinions, different skills, different opportunities to offer you is one of the very important parts of being a small business opening yourself up to that opportunity. Mm. And again, it's like another wave to crest, if you like, walking to somewhere where you don't know everybody immediately. It's going to be uncomfortable at first. Networking a room is horrendous when you don't know anybody. And you grab your cup of coffee and stand in the corner and hope nobody knocks your elbow and sends it all over your clothing. And that's about as far as you feel inside yourself you want to go. But then you think, well, everybody else must feel the same. So you try a shy smile with the one next to you and ask whether they've come a long distance and away you go, you know, then, mm. then you're off. You, you've got someone to talk to. It's a conversation. You can find out more about them. Who knows where these things go? But even if they go nowhere, it's still a very positive experience. And I think it's yes. something we mustn't lose as we come out of lockdown. We must remember that human experience is very important. Mm. They call them those water cooler moments, um, I think, in the US, don't they? And it's so vital. I don't know so about vital. the water cooler. I have always a nasty feeling that the water cooler is rather like smoking behind the back of the school shed, mm-hmm. actually. <laughs> not quite what I mean. It's, it's not that let's have a break moment. I think that's always going to be the case. This is something different. This is part of your business ethic. Does that make any sense? Mm. That to push yourself out of your 
self-given boundaries is important. If you're in a large firm, your 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 corners get rubbed off you like they do at school. You know, whether you like it or not, your corners get rubbed off you because you're just simply bumping against other people and your encounters every day. If you're working from home on your own, it can be a lonely experience if you don't make these opportunities to genuinely try and move around the edges of your business and extend your little tentacles out into other areas, like the octopus does. So maybe Mm. having some wisdom of the octopus to bring to your business is a good idea. Throw out a few tentacles and you can always withdraw them if it doesn't work, but if you don't, you will become very static. It is a fantastic analogy of the octopus. I think you always have to sort of keep moving on that sort of networking side of things, uh, don't you, for sure? And I do understand where you're coming from with the human contact as well, because if we lose that, we lose things that are so vital for innovation and progress as well. Absolutely. I mean, in again, the, the coffee coffee houses of the 17th century were where innovations were discussed. It's where scientists and artists and financiers bankers all met because they all wanted coffee and um, again sort of exchanged ideas because you can't just sit there sipping your coffee in isolation you, you you might try and sip it and talk to somebody who's next to you exactly right and we can't lose that we can't lose that and uh, yeah so it could be that the centers of our cities have to redefine themselves in quite a fundamental way to become the places where we go to meet others and um, maybe like uh, London always used to be the place you went up for the season. Perhaps there should be like the business season. I don't know. I mean, we haven't really even begun to think this one through. Mm. But uh, it's exciting times. Yes, exactly. And for planning, certainly, that's going to be very much at the heart of this moving forward. And thinking of the... Oh, yes, planning, yeah. I, I, I sigh at the moment at the very word. <laughs> Every planning officer seems to have gone into a shell from which there is no cracking. Um, They've become the hermit shell crab rather than the octopus, I'm afraid. Um, And and, and I can understand it. I mean, the public sector is very, very stretched. Um, Nobody wants to be contactable by telephone because they think that it's detracted from doing their job. Uh, which in many cases it probably is, and their job is a very large mountain, and it's it, it's a, a an electronic mountain doesn't fall on the ground the way a physical one used to in the offices. I mean, I once worked in an office where literally the planning officer's in tray collapsed on the floor because he had too many cases. Mm. Um, but everybody was then aware they had too many cases because they wanted to help pick up the files and put them back in the right places. So it was extremely and immediately obvious if somebody was overworked. So you're all working from home. And how how does anybody find this out? Mm. You're not going to admit it to your boss because it's like an admission of failure. It's a terrible statement they've got themselves into. I really worry. I know it's not just planning. It's just the planning situation is the one I'm most familiar with. And it is extraordinarily frustrating for everybody, particularly for the poor developer. Poor developer, maybe not poor, but paying interest on something which is not moving because somebody else has an overpacked in tray because mm. they've got far too many cases to deal with um, and the thing's just piling up. So that's one of the problems at the moment, I think, with planning. 
there is no time for real planning. It's um, firefighting planning. It is, and that's where essentially that sort of well-being comes back into play, isn't it? Because how can we be at our most effective when we're overworked in such a way? Absolutely, but it also means that the job gets undervalued because Mm. nobody can perceive what good things could be done because there's no time to do them. And, uh, you know, a, a good idea comes from collaboration between many different people. And uh, very often the public sector is an extremely important part of that collaboration. It can be a very, very useful catalyst to it. Um, I've worked on quite a few programs, on New Deal for Communities programs, even going back to the, the, the great old um, city partnership programs. And uh, after that came Stratford East London. I worked on that and mm. uh, did the bus station and the station square and uh, and, oh my goodness, I can't think. We had the DNR coming, we had this, that, the other, and which. And we designed a whole centre that was along what was a nasty back road behind the town, which was a speedway. And it became the centre of town, it became the heart of the town with the Westfield Shopping Centre, the Olympic Park. And one could go on. I mean, the planning of that area is still undergoing many, many changes. 20, 25 years on from the very initial ideas that uh, were put forward in the old days when it was just redundant railway lands. Um, But the role of communicating with people who lived there was fundamental because by talking to so many people, it was really good. I think the, the way one consults with people is absolutely fundamental. And I do worry as well with planning that consultation for the sake of it and consultation online, consultation where people simply tell you what they think rather than having the opportunity to debate it is not going to come up with good solutions. I mean, in my long experience, good solutions tend to come from not just any one person and are totally unpredictable sometimes. Um, Sometimes you go into something and you have no idea what's going to come out and what comes out is fantastic. And nobody thought of it. Um, but it works because so many people have put their minds around it. And if you get, you know, 40, 80, 100, 200, 300 people's ideas and minds thinking about something, you're going to get something that's quite different from two minds thinking about it. Mm. It's, it's very difficult to manage. It takes a long time and a lot of effort. can be quite hairy at times. This is another of these. This is a big wave to crest, I have to say, that to manage a large consultation process can be seriously scary at times. Mm. And I do think that sometimes local councillors are a little afraid of it as well because they feel it might be taking the wind out of their sails, which is, of course, not the case at all. And uh, the very effective ones get fully involved in it and learn an awful lot more than they would just by walking from house to house because it's that debate. It's the one person who changes their mind as a consequence of the discussions, who then goes on to influence others. That one person is gold dust. Worth 20 or 30, you always are on your side or always know what they think and will never change their mind. Those you can, you can count them. But that one person who is a result of good, well-thought-out consultation 
comes to something new. And it may not be changing their mind to what others think. Maybe that by everybody talking, something completely new comes out. And then people get behind it and influencers get behind it. Mm. And this is why I say consultation is not a zero-sum game. Consultation is not a case of, I have power, I hand it to you, I've lost it. Consultation is where the more people getting involved means the sum of what you get is greater than the part. It does have to be very well managed and very carefully managed, particularly expectations. There's no good going to a group of people and saying, what do you want? They say, I want a bypass. And you say, oh, yeah, right, here's the money, there you go. Oh, by the way, vote for me. Because it may be that that's never going to happen, realistically. And sometimes telling people the realities of what you think you may be able to influence, what you think you can't influence, and what you might therefore want to concentrate on, is a difficult nettle to grasp. And sometimes this planning consultant, Miami, has ended up having to be the one to grasp it. And that, that mm-hmm. is a big wave. That is a big wave. And um, managing your consultancy so you still have a client at the end of that it is quite something, I have to say. Mm. It, it takes some thought. Takes some thought. When it goes well, it goes yeah. very, very well. But when it goes badly, it's sorry. Mm. So, more lessons, I guess. I'm still, I'm still giving myself lessons. I think I'm one of these people, and the more I, older I get, the less I think I know. Mm. We learn um, every day. We never stop learning, even well, in leadership I, roles. I, I did mm. once have a boss. He was a Greek, of course, because he said to me, well, there are two choices. There's you either know nothing or you know everything is a, a very philosophical way of looking at it all but um, I, I think uh, you know you have to go into these things humbly and say you're on the I know nothing route mm. and then you learn a great deal and it can be very interesting I, I did get involved with neighbourhood plans for a little while mm. and decided I'd, be, I'd train as a neighbourhood plan examiner um, so I trotted off to a little village that had run its neighbourhood plan and um, the examiner is not supposed to actually encounter people and talk to them, at least not with the head of being an examiner. You can go into the shop and buy, buy a drink. And, of course, being a local village, they knew immediately it had to be the examiner because it was a stranger. So then you went and crept behind hedges and popped your head over the edge of the hedge to make sure nobody was looking before you went and had a good examiner of what you were supposed to be examining. And I found this enchanting little message. I'd gone down to a churchyard along a very beautiful footpath past the nature reserve. And in the churchyard it said, please don't walk your dogs here at dusk. The owls and the bats are collecting their food at dusk and you and your dog are disturbing them. Please don't walk here at dusk. I thought what a charming and enchanting little message. It explained why there was a regulation and explain why you might want to not go there at a particular time. It didn't say don't ever go there, just please don't go at dusk. And I thought this is probably the sort of thing we start to need to do if we're going to respect nature. A lot of our plans are going to have to reflect nature in exactly that way. And very few planners are trained to plan to reflect nature. It's almost unique, I don't know. I thought the community did that must be a fundamentally very interesting community. Mm. And needless to say, I'd said that their neighbourhood plan was wonderful. I can imagine so. And I think this is the sort of thinking we need to see to be sort of respectful of, you know, the environment and the climate around us as we move forward from the pandemic and try to really 
take those lessons forward and just before we yes um, and just before we do wrap up on the program uh, today liz as well i do want to talk a little bit more about the uh, the future and what it sort of brings from a personal perspective for you and your business core connections having sort of embraced the uh, the new year of course we're still in the very sort of drab part of january those winter months uh, what is sort of your priority going to be over this uh, next year as we hopefully move out of the acute phase of COVID and really start to embrace the challenges of the future? That's a very interesting question, which is what one usually says when the right answer is I haven't the clue. <laughs> a lot to consider, isn't um, it? It's a lot to consider and I, 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 I fear that we've been saying for almost two years when we get out of the pandemic and maybe two years ago we thought it would take three months then we thought it takes six then we thought it might take a year now you know we're two years down the line and we really perhaps have to remember that a lot of these sort of awful disease waves that people have encountered in the past led to changes in behavior. I mean, look at the way we introduced sewage systems into London following the cholera outbreaks in the 19th century. And, um, you know, it may well be that in 10, 15 years, everybody will look back and say, oh, weren't they a bit optimistic? On the other hand, they may say, weren't we a bit pessimistic? Because maybe in 15 years' time, everybody will be looking at nature in the cities. Maybe we'll have little signs up saying, Please don't walk your dog at dusk along this little avenue because there are bats foraging down there. It would be an enchanting idea, wouldn't it? So what am I going to do personally? I think just keep thinking at the moment. I think we've been given like a pause. I have a feeling that for the next six months we should all think very, very hard, try and work out what our priorities are. Some of the people who worked with me on Nearless have done that on these um, YouTube um, videos, mm. the Tertullius. One of them left his company that he'd set up and, and retired from it and uh, now does other things that he likes doing. Another one expanded his company four or five times, um, went from two people to having quite a, quite a substantial staff now. Three or four others have joined them. So... Uh, I, I think it has promoted a lot of thought by people about exactly what they want. But in terms of me, myself, personally, um, well, I'm drawing to the period of time when I need to start thinking about writing. I suspect I shall try and write some things. Um, maybe I'll try and um, do some more talks like this. Mm. It could be very interesting. So perhaps on that note of uncertainty, deep thought, um, maybe some drawing and some poetry. <laughs> I might even learn to surf. You never know. You never know indeed. And it's incredible, isn't it, what these periods of reflection can, can do for us, isn't it, that we've seen during COVID and the changes that we're thinking about bringing in. And it's going to be interesting to see how that really sort of takes shape from not just a personal but also real national perspective as well, how industry develops, how society develops. And I think, Liz, actually, yeah, given how sort of interesting and enlightening this discussion has been today, I'd relish the opportunity when we start to see some of these changings really taking shape to actually invite you back onto the program and reflect on exactly what we've discussed today and what exactly has happened in sort of the time between our discussions it could be 12 months could be 18 months we just don't know but i'm sure there'll be plenty 
that has gone on and plenty that has changed in the time between. Indeed. Yes. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to have the chat today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme, uh, Liz. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure, of course, that thought is uh, shared amongst all of the listeners as well. And uh, most importantly, uh, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite out of this yet. But let's just keep our fingers crossed that better days are ahead. And who knows exactly how we may have to change and adapt in future. And it's going to be very interesting indeed. Thank you. And to all of our regular listeners tuning in today as well, I do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed the interview with Core Connections, Elizabeth Wrigley, as much as I. And if you tuning in today feel that you have, based on this, your own stories of success and innovation to share, or even a real thought for the day to come and bring to our listenership base, then why don't you apply to be on the show via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply, because we'd love to hear from you as well. Until next time all, please do take care and goodbye.